Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, May 24th, 2023, and these are the three questions that we're going to be answering today as we get into the week before NAFSA. And before, as we do each week, we cover these three questions that are that come out of news stories that we've seen developing over the past few weeks, and in particular, uh, we have a newsletter that goes out on Monday mornings, 9 a.m. Eastern. A couple different ways you can subscribe to that, either through our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Enter in your details. You'll get that email newsletter version delivered to your inbox each Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. And that includes top social media and international education news stories and oftentimes where those overlap and our quick hot takes on what those uh, what those news stories mean for us in international ed and then Wednesdays we go in more in depth into three of three of those themes that we see developing throughout those news stories and uh, give us give a little bit more detailed perspective on how we think uh, this might impact what we do in international ed and what you might be able to do some, do about it uh, and as I mentioned, there are two ways to do that, either direct through our website, and I'll drop the link to our most recent edition of the newsletter into the chat as well. Uh, and the other way you can get it is via LinkedIn. If you get, prefer to get your international ed news on that platform, I'll drop the link to this week's edition. You can click the subscribe button and you can get added to that. Uh, well over a thousand subscribers on both of these uh, both of these versions combined. So very happy to be uh, coming to you uh, live each week, either through this midweek roundup or through that newsletter. So thanks for making us a part of your international edification. Now let's get right to the questions. First up, one of the big bad questions we get often uh, and cover in various ways on the roundup and throughout the newsletter over the last four or five years, ever since we started the, this uh, initiative, uh, is the importance of China to U.S. higher education. And the question now is how important is it? Is China to U.S. higher education, and this is uh, this question comes up as a result of recent uh, legislative action that the state of Florida has taken to, in in effect, ban public institutions from having relationships with Chinese uh, universities and other entities in China. Uh, it is uh, there's a similar bill uh, that also has some anti-DEI provisions uh, that also passed in Florida that is making its way through the state legislature in Ohio currently, and the Ohio ban Ohio bill SB 83 passed the Senate last week, and immediately before the Senate voted on that, Ohio State in an unusual move came out uh, fully against that measure because of its impact on both DEI and international collaboration with uh, entities and organizations, institutions in China. So uh, that's an unusual thing for a state university to speak publicly against a, a bill that has had overwhelming bipartisan, well, not, not overwhelming bipartisan, but it had overwhelming support. I think it was uh, 28 to 10 uh, voted in favor of that in the Senate. Uh, and then it's make, got, to wait, got to make its way through the state house. Uh, and then to uh, Governor DeWine if it passes the House for signature. Uh, the impact of this kind of legislation, and we're seeing this pop up, uh, where it seems like everything is getting politicized in one way or another, uh, whether you're in a red state or a blue state or a purple state, or uh, there, th these kinds of questions are coming up in state legislatures, not just at the national level. Uh, the questions of DEI, which have become 
such an important part of uh, how universities and colleges have uh, sought to broaden uh, their reach and their level of support for students from across uh, a range of um, socioeconomic, racial, cultural, gender uh, type uh, questions and, and their, uh, their ability to, to fit in on campus and find the resources that they need to succeed. Uh, in, in some places that's been taken to the extreme. In other places, it's uh, just it's being used as a uh, in, in California in California public universities. It's being used as a litmus test in some ways. It's seen as a litmus test, a DEI statement that the applicants have to uh, agree to uh, when they're interviewed and potentially hired. So there's a lot of uh, politics that's gone into this DEI discussion. It's been been a little bit of a uh, unfortunate side effect of what the, what the conversation and the intent of initial DI work has meant, been meant to, to provide universities and its students. Uh, so the, China has gotten wrapped up in this, uh, as a, in these legislative attempts in Florida and potentially in Ohio, where it would have a very hard and fast ban on institutions in public institutions in that state from doing uh, having relationships uh, with institutions in China. Uh, that impacts obviously those larger schools uh, that universities that have had uh, relationships for decades uh, with institutions in China. Uh, we've been involved uh, looking in a, in a relationship with a, a school in Florida, public school in Florida, that's no longer able to continue doing a particular program with a Chinese partner. And we've been asked to come in and look at and see if we can do something to take their place because we're not in a state that right now is is uh, potentially going that far with it, to that extreme with banning public institutions from working with uh, institutions in China. So this is something that we're, uh, we're that is impact has real life consequences for universities that are doing work in China, uh, whether it's sending students to study abroad through partner institutions, receiving students, uh, research collaboration, all of that is impossible now. If uh, certainly in Florida for public institutions, they may be able to still receive students, but not through partner institutions, not through uh, that kind of formal relationship, institution to institution relationship that is now banned by Florida law. That might happen in, in Ohio as well in terms of uh, public institutions facing a similar ban on uh, relationships with uh, Chinese institutions. So we'll see where that goes. But it's a real it's coming coming on the heels of a post-pandemic um, hope that there was going to be a rebound of some sorts in, in uh, student flows from China to the U.S. Uh, they have certainly kept up in terms of flows to the U.K. for predominantly for one-year master's programs, which are now we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast in the roundup about that impact in the U.K. But uh, Australia's seen a, a not as robust a, re a rebounding of uh, student interest. Uh, we've seen. Um, seen that uh, New Zealand is seeing a little bit more Chinese interest there, uh, so but U.S. has not seen uh, as significant an interest. And part of the challenges are are basic logistics. It's not that they haven't been able to go and get visas. It's because they've only up until late December, late December, early January, even had the ability to travel again overseas. Uh, um, due to travel restrictions in place by the government. And then after being able to allowed to travel again, the ways that, for say for students who were looking to start in January, the ways that they would have had to have gone to fly directly to the U.S. Uh, were 
or, or they wouldn't be able to fly directly in most cases, and they would have to go through third-party countries before they could come and do rather secure, secure, circuitous routes to get to us. It sounded like a Canadian there, routes, uh, but <laughs> circuitous routes to get to us, and they would be very expensive. Uh, I'm going to be taking a trip uh, with our provost and uh, one of our faculty members uh, to China middle of June, till to the end of June, and uh, the flights are outrageous. Uh, first time I looked a month ago, they were about $10,000 for flights into, into China because uh, so, there were so few of them. But in the last week or two, there's been more flights opening up, so prices are dropping down from 10000 to 4000 so still pretty significantly uh, above average uh, in terms of what you need to pay to get into China or out of China, and for that matter. So uh, China started reopening, and when they op reopened flights in January, started with their regional partners uh, that uh, they have the most business with and trade with. That made sense. And now they're slowly expanding to the rest of the world. And hopefully by this fall, those flights will be up and uh, available again for Chinese students to come back in, in more significant numbers than they had been able to in the spring. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and certainly um, we're, we're going uh, in terms of our relationships in China. Uh, we're investing heavily in, in China uh, time and effort and energy uh, and spending a couple of weeks there uh, at the end of June to uh, be introduced to some key potential partners, one of which we've already be starting to work with as of next June for uh, July for a summer program for some of our hospitality students. But we're looking to build relationships, not cut back. Um, we're fortunate, perhaps, we're in a purple state so where it's not, uh, not, it's a blue-purple state, uh, but uh, in terms of leadership, more, more purple probably uh, at this point, but it's uh, one that uh, it, where these kind of anti-China, anti-DEI kind of sentiments haven't flared up, and that, that would be very difficult to do at, at a campus like UNLV, where our campus is 67% diverse, uh, racial, ethnic diversity, so uh, we, uh, we already have that as part of our DNA, so it'd be very hard to to, to not allow DEI. But uh, anyway, beside the point. But related to China, there are certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of institutions that are, if particularly public institutions, if they're in red states, that are, are being really hesitant about going too, too far, too, too, too quick in, in terms of relationships with China. Uh, we're hoping for rebounds in students, but we, we know that there's been a demographic downturn in uh, Chinese undergraduate populations, which had really fueled the growth in Chinese students over the last 15 years. But starting 2016, 2017, there was already signs of a decline, and that was exacerbated by the pandemic, and uh, we're not going to get back up to 2015, 2016 levels, I don't think, in terms of Chinese students. Uh, but we certainly, because we also know that they are they are increasingly uh, being sought after uh, by uh, countries around the world. Uh, and major destinations uh, are, might, might include countries you've not thought of potentially as a destination for Chinese students, Germany, France, uh, India, potentially, uh, coming up on their radar as a place where they want to study beyond just the traditional UK, US, US Canada, Australia. Uh, so we're, we're seeing more choice that they have, and as a result, there's more options on the table. So to really attract students in, in significant numbers again, you're going to have to work harder to get them. And that's just the, the nature of the beast, unfortunately, in this uh, wider uh, global student mobility chase that we're all engaged in, uh, in terms of uh, knowing that we're up against competition, that students in China are applying to four or five different countries, not just different universities, but different countries uh, and, uh, when they're looking at higher ed options. So positioning yourself as an institution, a preferred destination for Chinese students, you need to have, really have 
uh, your wits about you. You have to certainly have um, relationships that you're building with the right partners in country. Uh, you need to have a value proposition for students in China that speaks to the advantages, not just of your institution, uh, and certainly you want to play on those when it comes to the issues of safety and have the testimonials from your current Chinese students that can speak to that, because uh, that, that's going to be res that's going to resonate with a lot of parents, especially. But you want to have that value add proposition for what is your degree going to get them, uh, and speak specifically to the routes that your graduates and if you can get it down to where your Chinese graduates go uh, for further graduate education or for employment in the United States or returning home, if you are able to track any of that information, having that data is going to be more to your advantage. So you got to customize your game, you got to elevate your game, and you got to have the data and the anecdotal stories to help make your pitch for you, not just, rely, uh, not just rely on what you have to say and why your institution is the best thing since sliced bread. But that's beside the point. You have to know your competition, that, they are, that these students that you're going after are, are being sought after highly by uh, countries all around the world uh, because there they're just are the numbers of them. Uh, but you also have to realize that uh, uh, you can't just uh, you can't just go in with the, your traditional pitch that you have for other international students. You have to show that uh, why you're different and why you have value uh, to each student that you, you 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 present your case to, and that's certainly something that we need to do a better job of. And in addition to the Texas or excuse me the Ohio and the Florida bills we've talked about. Uh, there was one potential bright spot, and this is an interesting perspective you don't always see, uh, but it was a Global Times article last week uh, that was uh, entitled, Chinese International Student Brings the National Flag to the Graduation Ceremony and Receives Applause. And this is interesting. It was a graduation ceremony in the United States. They don't, they don't identify which university it was, uh, but he, it's a Chinese student in his cap and gown carrying, carrying his, probably his uh, Chinese national flag and walking it down. Uh, and that's, uh, and the, the fact that the article points out that the student received applause for that. And I think this is, this is something that I would want to hold on to and say, okay, there's hope yet, and it's not all anti-China rhetoric that seems to get politicized across across the country and all our news media outlets. It, the, the reality is, on the ground on campus, our Chinese students are are seen as valued assets to our campuses, and that they are treated well. They're treated with respect. They're treated with applause when they're showing their pride in their own country. And there's nothing wrong with that. We 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 do we do the same thing for our students when they go abroad. They have their flags. We tell them not to be too ugly American when they're out there when we're uh, sending students abroad for study. Uh, but you see that. It, we we we're happy that they're taking pride in who they are and their culture and and where they're from, and that's something we want. We celebrate in our international offices on our campuses and hopefully across our campuses in general. That's that's something we value, and the fact that this is getting play back in China uh, is 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 a good thing I think uh, because it's showing that it's not all the anti uh, Asian anti China rhetoric that you that you see that they can and are being treated with respect when they come. So I think that's a that's a potential sliver of bright news that you want to want to certainly uh, hold on to, and uh, I think there's a lot of value in terms of when we when we talk about uh, you can't put enough value I think on the val on what these current students are living now and those experiences and how they can speak most directly to prospective students in their own countries, and the more we can leverage that in how we recruit in China or in any nation around the world. That having that personal connection, having that story 
uh, that can be shared peer-to-peer, that matters and has value far beyond anything you could do individually on your own travels, your own relationships that you, you might have overseas. So how important is China to the U.S. higher education uh, scene? It is, it's vital, uh, and it's uh, losing that rela- those relationships can dramatically alter the landscape of some colleges and universities around the country, uh, if, uh, particularly in terms of partnerships, if, if, if laws like what has happened in Florida and Ohio, potentially in Ohio. Uh, it will be interesting to see what the long-term impact is on uh, on student flows, uh, seeing that a state has now banned public universities from uh, having relationships with Chinese universities. Does that, will that trickle down to, well, Chinese students are going to see that, well, we're not welcome in, in Florida. Um, the state may have other ways of getting around that, but that's certainly going to be an impression that uh, is going to become reality for those students uh, in terms of how, that, how they're viewed. Uh, how they think they're going to be viewed if uh, in if they come to a university in Florida. It's very unfortunate because um, I know many uh, colleagues at Florida institutions, public and private, that are seeing this as potentially a significant blow to their ability to recruit students from the mainland China. So we'll see where it goes, but it is a vital piece. And there's still over 30, still 30% of our student, international students, maybe a little less now, are from China. It's still a big driver of, um, of our numbers each year. India is going to overtake China this year, just uh, in terms of raw numbers in the U.S. But it's, uh, China and India are always going to be one and two. So we can't ignore that big of a market. So that's, that's where we're coming from on, on question number one. Question two, what South and East Asian markets are best beyond India and China? So this is, this is uh, referencing a couple of important articles um, our friends at Intet have put out, and it's entitled, When Traditional Mar- Markets Weaken, Look to Asia, Part 1 and Part 2. Uh, the first part uh, talks about Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and I believe... I'll see, I'm sorry. Uh, first one it does <laughs> starts with the South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, and Japan as the, the four in that uh, article. And the second one uh, focuses on Nepal, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Philippines. And in terms of numbers, uh, those are the, the top senders. Uh, each of them are top 25 uh, countries uh, sending to the United States. Uh, very big players. Uh, we we've known about. We always already already know India and China. But they're far and away number one and number two. But these markets, um, we already know, seventy percent of all international students in the U.S. come from Asia. So it's obvious that there are going to be other pockets beyond India and China that uh, we can and should be focusing on. So uh, the the Intet articles, uh, both of which will be in the chat, uh, were also these were both in the newsletter on Monday. Uh, that uh, both they talk through each of the different countries, what the what the relative strengths are, uh, the kinds of uh, kinds of um, kinds of opportunities that uh, and things that you need to be aware of if you're going to be recruiting there. Uh, talks about uh, industries in each of these countries. I like this bit. Uh, the economic data for each of the countries. What are the rising industries uh, include in that interest in in that country? So you can find ways uh, to potentially promote your programs, academic programs, to meet those needs, uh, meet the demand that uh, is, is obviously in those countries. 
Uh, one of the one of the countries that's on this list in the second part uh, is Indonesia. I want to talk a little bit about that uh, that country because it is, believe it or not, the fourth most populous country in the world after China, India, U.S., and then Indonesia. Uh, it is uh, with over 267 million people, I think. Uh, so it is uh, a market that. Not enough uh, U.S. schools spend a lot of time in, and uh, I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. It takes forever to get there, even if you're in a California location. Um, I'm potentially going there uh, later this fall, and it's a, anywhere from a 34 to a 44-hour trip just to get there. Uh, so a lot of, uh, a lot, hopefully a lot more uh, other colleagues who have gone there before, they, they have some uh, interesting travel stories getting there and back. But it's a long trip anyway. But it is uh, such a huge market. Uh, why does it get ignored? I think probably because Australia has traditionally done well there. Uh, they don't send volumes of students overseas for a country its size. Um, I think the U.S. has about 8,000 as of the last Open Doors count from in students from Indonesia in the United States. Uh, there were, um, there are, there is a government scholarship program. Uh, it's one of the, one of those more selective ones where if you're top 100, top 200, you're, you can, you can get in and in the global rankings. So, um, uh, we have one program that's uh, on their rankings, but that might be a reason to get our foot in the door there. Uh, we've never been, uh, as I mentioned, had UNLV up until this past year, we didn't do international student recruitment travel. Uh, we're still doing most of it virtually, but I'm doing partnerships, and eventually this year we may be getting into doing some direct travel. Uh, so we're, we're looking at this as, uh, uh, as a market we need to be focusing on, opportunities for partnerships as well, institutional partnerships. But uh, as a country that I think doesn't get enough attention, and certainly one, uh, there's going to be a delegation uh, from the Indonesian Scholarship Group that will be at NAFSA, NAFSA next week. Um, uh, they've set up a couple different events. There's a kind of a meet and greet uh, reception, and there's also um, one-on-ones that you can get with uh, kind of the coordinators of that group. Also simultaneously got contacted by Education USA in Indonesia, said, hey, you're on this government scholarship list. We're doing all these fairs that target these students in October. You should come. Uh, there's also an institution that might want to talk to you. So there's a nice coordination of effort going on right now related around Indonesia. So I'm very happy to see that uh, and certainly will we'll hopefully lead to uh, some potential uh, partnerships and, and student flows uh, in the coming year for us. But Indonesia is of the, of the ones on that list. It's uh, probably the one that kind of confounds most uh, U.S. experts uh, in terms of why we don't do better there uh, because it's closer to Australia. It's right in their backyard. Maybe we don't think we have as uh, tight a grip or ability to get in there. Uh, there's certainly going to be some of that competition, and that's, that's, that's just a, it's a good that we're aware of that going in. Uh, but we're certainly... Um, it's uh, the, the Indonesia, Malaysia as well, uh, that region in Southeast Asia, there's certainly plenty of uh, opportunity there for, uh, for, as with any country really, uh, if you understand it well enough, you do your homework and you have identified potential partners in that country to help you find your way, either developing uh, schools that you're going to work with, uh, partners, partnerships that you want to build with universities, whatever it might be, agents, whatever, uh, having that initiative to go all in in the country does require some planning and forethought. And this is something that we're, you, you, as, as markets develop, you want to start, have a, have a two, three year plan for developing a presence in a market. It's not something that you're going to get automatically 10 students next year because you, 
did a trip to Indonesia. That's not going to happen not most, in most cases, but it starts the ball rolling on generating momentum and repeated presence and showing that you're, you're there. That's how you, how you build, uh, build brand in the market when you're when you haven't been there anywhere uh, before. So that's uh, certainly a, a big challenge and one that um, kudos to the Inted boys uh, and girls, uh, uh, great team there uh, for putting together the, these content articles on uh, the best, some of the best markets outside of India and China in East and South Asia. So uh, that's uh, question number two. Our final question of the day is one that um, it's been coming for a while. It's been coming since um, the Sunak government took office late last year. And where uh, there was some hope in the international community in the UK that uh, the initial uh, bluster about, well, we uh, net migration numbers are up and uh, this year substantially, and it's because international students for bringing uh, their families with them for these one-year master's degree programs. Uh, it was about uh, students getting uh, coming for low-quality degrees from UK universities. Uh, trying to, uh, it was a little bit of an elitist approach, if uh, to be fair, about uh, from the government, from the leadership, from uh, the prime minister himself about uh, value of of different programs in the UK, and that they should only be coming to the best institutions um, rather than every other country, Canada, Australia. Uh, U.S. Uh, allows international students to come in numbers to all levels of education, even down to elementary school in, in, in the U.S. and other countries. But at vocational education, that <laughs> seems to be completely off the radar for or wish list of anything for the Sunak government. But his uh, his home secretary, Suella Braverman, certainly uh, uh, put pushed the boat out uh, very quickly when after she became home secretary. Uh, for the second time in a short span, uh, to allow uh, to shine a light on the net migration numbers that uh, most international educators in the UK will say international students shouldn't be counted in the international in the migrate net migration numbers, uh, but are um, because they're not technically an immigrant visa, uh, even though they can legally transfer into those statuses. Uh, the fear is um, these uh, the, all the dependents that have come with these students. Uh, the UK uh, universities have seen spikes in the last three years, particularly during the pandemic uh, and beyond uh, for, for what their one-year master's degree programs. Uh, so not as expensive as a two-year stay in the U.S., uh, uh, one-year living expenses in addition. So seen as a very easy way to get into the UK. But now they've started to bring their dependents with them, their spouses and children. And the drain in the UK terms, uh, from the government terms, the drain on uh, public resources, uh, health, uh, NHS, uh, and schools, and uh, uh, food, and all of that, uh, these, it's seen as too significant a, a jump. And as a result, the UK government has made the decision, and it sounds like it's, it's happened this week, they're now going to prohibit one-year master's degree students coming from overseas to the UK from bringing dependents. So in order to get that net migration number under control, all in the name of net migration control. So as a result, this is a, a going back to that, that perspective uh, thing that we talked about and we talk about regularly on the Roundup. Uh, what does this, how will it, this decision be viewed, even though it's targeting just those students coming for one year master's degree programs from not being able to bring dependents? 
how will this be viewed in, oh, you can't bring your family. Don't, if, if, yeah, so don't, you just have to come by yourself. Is that going to mean, is that going to be seen in overseas markets as, um, as oh, it's just a, just a small group of students. No, it's going to be the majority of new students coming would have been, are going to be now prohibited from bringing in uh, dependents. How many of the last year's, um, this is the numbers I don't know, and I'd love to hear it from some of my UK colleagues, but how many of those new one-year master's degree students brought uh, dependents with them and how many how many more of them than there are students, that type of thing. I, I haven't seen that data, but that is akin to what I'm what I'm what I would see if this this decision getting made is akin to what um, in terms of impact akin to what the uh, Trump travel bans did in during his uh, right after he was inaugurated where he suddenly said seven countries uh, even uh, the, they banned travel from uh, from those seven countries to the United States because Muslim majority countries primarily. Uh, even though there were exemptions in there for students, the numbers dried up from those countries fairly quickly as a result of the travel ban. But you also saw a wider uh, view of that in 17, 18, 19, when those tra travel bans were, how that was being viewed by uh, students and their parents in other countries, even though it was a travel uh, Muslim majority country travel ban, the view was that the United States was not as welcoming to international students, and this was a symptom of that, uh, this travel ban. I think this move by the UK government to prohibit dependents coming with students for, that are, are, are attending UK universities for one-year master's programs, that uh, impact can be as significant as negative as the Muslim travel bans were in the U.S. in 2017 and 18 and onward during the Trump administration. So uh, I think there's a, it's, it's really unfortunate, and I think that U.K. universities, they, were, they had just peaked. They hit their uh, 2030 goal for international students eight years early. Uh, there were over 680,000, I think, or 630,000 international students in the, in the U.K. last year. So doing really well, and numbers were going well. But they were on a churn and burn cycle on these one-year master's students that may dry up uh, in terms of the, the volume that they're going to see and will certainly be lessened. Uh, in, in, in what they're going to see in the next um, next couple of years as a result. And maybe that will have knock-on knock impact as well. But there, there's, there's some real damage that's going to be done, real kind of shooting yourself in the foot just when you're up. Uh, maybe it's popping, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use here, popping the balloon of success. Uh, when you're at your peak, you pop that balloon and then it comes right back down. So uh, all the enthusiasm that had been built up, and well, we really did well during the pandemic. We've come out uh, stronger, and but then they've got the housing crises. They've got the food insecurity uh, uh, issues that we've seen. Um, we've seen, Now we have this uh, dependent ban. So there's a lot of things that the UK government has done uh, that have not helped uh, and ser certainly not built upon a fairly solid foundation that had been built and a platform for success to take it to the next level was really there but uh, now uh, seems to have been undermined uh, quite considerably by what the, the UK government has uh, done. 
So I'll be interested to chat with uh, my uh, British colleagues next week over a few uh, few beverages at uh, receptions during the week, but uh, as to what their opinions are and what's next for them and how that impacts what they're going to do uh, in the next recruitment cycle. But certainly a lot of unanswered questions uh, for, from, from uh, what's next in the UK, uh, but uh, hopefully they will finally they will get some resolution to this and hopefully a turnaround in policy in the next uh, next weeks or months. Well, that's all we have for you today uh, for on the Midweek Roundup, and we want to thank you for joining the conversation. It's really good to see some people uh, in the chat today. But uh, I do want to say next week uh, we'll be doing our traditional live from the expo floor of uh, the NASA Exhibition Hall. Uh, so I'll be uh, coming to you live uh, Wednesday next week at uh, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, live from the Expo Hall. I hope to, for those that are, are going to NAFSA, hopefully catch up with you then. Uh, if not, uh, we'll, we'll look forward to chatting with you in the weeks to come. So thanks very much and have a great day.